Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First, the economist Rob Larson will talk about capitalism, freedom, competition, monopoly, and teaching in a community college. And then Keith Gessen will talk about contemporary Russia through the lens of his new novel, A Terrible Country. According to our most prestigious right-wing ideologist, capitalism is inseparable from freedom. Milton Friedman wrote a very effective polemic with that as a theme, and Friedrich Hayek famously argued that if you step in the freedom of capitalists, you've launched yourself down the road to serfdom. But really, how free does capitalism make us? What do we mean when we talk about freedom anyway? These are some of the issues that Rob Larson addresses in Capitalism versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom, just published by Zero Books. Larson also teaches economics at Tacoma Community College in Washington. Rob Larson. Your subtitle is quite amusing, but it alludes to something uh, serious, the toll road to serfdom. Tell us about that. When you uh, come up as a uh, young economist or just any young person in school, when you get into any kind of political debate very quickly, you'll be handed or referred to uh, some of these hoary right-wing classics, you know. And uh, there's Milton Friedman's book. And the one the subtitle's referring to is, of course, Frederick, Frederick Hayek's memorable uh, Road to Serfdom about how all these New Deal and European Social Democrat programs are going to eventually form a government tyranny over us and so on. My book has been focused on how within the marketplace and capitalism, we have a lot of very real limits on freedom, too. So my subtitle is The Toll Road to Serfdom. Which, by the way, uh, you know, that's just all the rage in, uh, among uh, conservative economists who think of an infrastructure program, they think of toll roads for everyone, right? Mm, indeed. It's, uh, it's very popular, but if your town is like some of those small Texas uh, towns that I talk about in the book and you're surrounded by toll roads, that can, be, that can start to look pretty bleak to it. So freedom. This is a major selling point of, of the right. Uh, my friend Corey Robin, a political scientist, has written on how the left has given up on freedom as a goal or anything we really talk about. So let's talk about freedom. Uh, there are different conceptions of it, negative and positive. Uh, make that distinction for us. If you look at the sort of philosophical background, uh, the philosophical discussions of freedom that have taken place, uh, it's very broad. And there's a lot of subtlety to it. One broad distinction that gets made is uh, between positive and negative freedom. And uh, a lot of that originates from Isaiah Berlin's famous uh, essay on the subject. And the basic idea was that negative freedom that's the one that we get from capitalism. That's the one that we should be expecting. Negative freedom is seen to be the freedom from other people or institutions. So freedom from the power of other entities being able to dictate to you what you can and can't do. If you don't have that kind of interference in your life, we say that you have more negative freedom. Alternatively, uh, Berlin sketched out the idea of positive freedom or positive liberty, which is more about freedom to do different things, as it were. So like the right to consume a certain amount of society's economic production, the right to uh, say what you want in a public forum. And th those are sort of the two broad conceptions of that. And there's a lot of subtlety there. And I should say a lot of philosophers are kind of skeptical of the distinction in the first place. So, But that's a sort of conventional view of liberty on that basic level. And the traditional uh, sort of line that you do get, yeah, from the right, is that we have negative freedom in markets. No one can tell you what to shop, where to shop. No one can tell you where to work or what you become. And positive freedom, you know, that's how liberals create big government, by saying that they have a right to a welfare check or a right to health care uh, or something like that. So the conventional line that you get from these uh, sort of right-wing classics is, 
capitalism provides negative freedom, and that's the good one. Positive freedom is just a backdoor for government tyranny and socialism uh, and so on. And Friedman and Hayek in their books simply talk, mention this very briefly and land on negative freedoms, what we want. And so their books are focused on the negative aspects of power from the government. My book focuses on the negative aspects of power in the marketplace. People on the right are very concerned about uh, public concentrations of power, the government, but they really seem quite indifferent to private concentrations of power, you know, large corporations, big financial markets, uh, and even, of course, the compulsion to work, uh, which uh, is what drives uh, a lot of people's lives. Yeah, they're really not very interested in um, what uh, constraints the market brings on, on people's lives. Indeed. And it's amazing, of course, because so much of those real constraints and our freedom from the market, I mean, they make up the day-to-day -day reality of our lives, right? You go to work. For the huge majority of us, we have a boss who tells us what to do. And the option is do what they tell you or leave the job. Those are your alternatives. And the hierarchy of the workplace is completely absent from these uh, sort of right-wing treatments. And uh, like Corey Robbins said, like this is something that really animates people. And I'm amazed how much we've sort of been willing to uh, cede this territory uh, to the right. I think that's a uh, really major mistake. And also, yeah, exactly what you were referring to there, uh, Friedman at one point talking about the compulsion to work itself. Like you said, you know, most the huge majority of us, if you're not born in that tiny wealthy minority, you must work one way or another to make a living. At one point, Friedman says, since each family always has the option of producing for itself, therefore, anytime anyone ever works and takes orders from the boss, like we were saying, that's just their free will, that's their free decision. What an amazing, blasé, glib assumption that is. Anyone can just produce goods for themselves, because you know how that is, Doug. You and I own 50 acres of land and small mills for consumer goods and stuff. So he's right, obviously. Now, we don't want to disparage negative freedom entirely, right, even if the, uh, the right goes too far with it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and negative freedom, I mean, to me, it's clearly a major part of the whole legitimate train of liberty. I mean, people dictating to you... That's why we don't want kings. That's why we don't want dictators, because we want more negative freedom. I'm all for it. Uh, what just annoys me is the incredible amount of credit that these right-wing thinkers have gotten for being amazing visionaries. And all they can do is look at half of the problem of not having negative freedom, the part that does come from our government, which is an authoritarian power center. But as soon as it's the marketplace, the concerns are completely gone and less than a sentence will suffice to wave away any kind of issue there. So I'm all for these concepts of freedom. I'm just uh, annoyed with the assumption that capitalism is advancing them. But all these, these negative freedoms uh, don't do you much good if you don't have the material means to develop yourself as a human being. You need uh, food and, and shelter and a little more than the basics, really, to develop any kind of meaningful life, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about with positive freedom. It's the capacities to develop and do things. Absolutely. And uh, again, this is something that conservative philosophers are more skeptical toward, I mean, probably because of the social implications of it. To the extent that we take positive freedom seriously, it leads immediately toward, you know, well, what freedoms, you know, what do you need to have the freedom to become who you want to be and develop as an individual? 
And that gets immediately toward what you just mentioned. There are basic material requirements for a decent life. I mean, everyone who has a kid, it's how can I provide everything this kid's ne kid needs? How am I going to pay for the, you know, how am I going to get them into the best kind of school? How am I going to pay for their health care? Every parent's first overriding thought is how am I going to come up with all the stuff that humans really do need? Yeah, to survive, let alone thrive and find their gift for humanity that makes them an individual, you know? Those things require resources without any kind of positive freedom. There's no guarantee your kid's gonna get any of that stuff. And indeed, that is what we have in the markets. Uh, no one even pretends the market provides positive freedom. People like Hayek, von Mises, uh, and Friedman are very clear on where they think uh, the spark of creativity of the economic sort comes from, right? It's, it's from the upper classes, and the lower orders are really just should be grateful to them, right? Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite uh, pieces of material in this whole right-wing tradition is a letter that uh, I believe was von Mises, the founder of the Austrian conservative Austrian school, uh, sent to Ayn Rand. You, Ayn Rand, had the bravery to tell the common man what no politician will, that all the improvements in their lives come from the work of men who are better than them. Again, Ayn Rand is like a comic book version of this idea. You know, if you read her novels, you'll discover all the industrialists and capitalists. Yeah, they think of all their own innovations. Like they come up with their new technologies and they're the CEO. <laughs> like they're such ubermensch figures, these CEOs, like they have all the artistic creativity. They are also the scientists and the CEOs. That never takes place. I mean, even now, everyone looks at Silicon Valley, our new co-dominant industry, the tech industry, kind of co-dominant with Wall Street now, I think, uh, almost in sort of driving what's happening in the marketplaces now. Uh, if you take a look, everyone talks about these uh, tech CEOs as if they're the tech geniuses, Jeff Bezos and Zuckerberg. If you look at their histories, every single one of them, there's some technician or some designer who did most of the work. And now the CEO is just the person who is ruthless enough to get control and be in charge. I'm speaking with Rob Larson, author of Capitalism versus Freedom from Zero Books. Now, parenthetically, take a little departure from your book. Uh, you, you teach at Tacoma Community College. I imagine most of your students are of fairly modest origins, working class, you know, middle class, whatever you want to call it. What kind of economic ideas do they come into class with, and how do they react to the kinds of things you're saying? Uh, there is a, a variety. Uh, you're definitely right. Uh, the majority of our uh, campus community is uh, yeah, you know, what the, sometimes people consider underserved on education. They're often... Uh, blue-collar students. But one thing to mention uh, right at the very beginning is that our tuition is about one-third of the uh, universities in my state. Uh, it's still costly. <laughs> and uh, we have plenty of white-collar kids, you know, dentists and attorneys' kids coming in because they want to save some scratch on the first two years or so of general ed sections, you know, and then transfer on. So we do get a variety, and we have a lot of international students, too, who are often who often come from somewhat elite families overseas in East Asia. So I would say I'm lucky because our campus is a real mix of populations. Uh, that said, the ideas that they come in um, when they want to express them, I obviously we do encourage that in class that students express their ideas. It's definitely a mix. This young generation has a lot less hesitation in criticizing our economic system. And there is a lot of willingness to look at 
the candidates that these days strike young people as not being full of it and being willing to look at the problems of the system. So there's a lot of popularity of Sanders. Um, I haven't, you know, we've been on break since uh, the Ocasio-Cortez phenomenon broke, but I'm sure we'll see. I'm sure I'll hear about that when the term comes back. But the reason, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that uh, libertarianism, man, is very much a, uh, a real caucus among young people opinion, I would say. And I reliably have uh, a few young students uh, in my couple of classes each term, usually young gentlemen, usually young uh, white boys with not, uh, without any health problems. That usually <laughs> describes libertarian students, and God bless them because they're willing to talk in the class and they disagree with my skeptical analysis of the market economy. That's fine, obviously. Again, most teachers we welcome students who are willing to say anything, including disagreeing with us. I myself like to keep a limit on my own politics in the class. I'll break out the failures of neoclassical economics all day, but as far as like my own views, they have to ask. <laughs> But do you have to teach all that uh, textbook wisdom? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, the, the state requires that you cover some basics. You have uh, bits in the book about how the economy is not competitive. You know, to your classic uh, right-wing economists and most centrist economists as well, to some degree. Uh, it only works uh, if markets are actually competitive. And if markets aren't competitive, well, they have a lot of problems with their theory. How competitive are markets these days and how much concentration is there? Just the last two, really the last three years have seen a whole new wave of uh, commercial consolidation happening. And it's interesting, you know, if you look at our modern U.S. economic history, there's whole eras where the firms go through big orgies of merger activity and then they cool off on it. Maybe the government's enforcing antitrust or maybe it's a unfavorable climate for raising the cash to do the buyouts or whatever. But it happens in waves very frequently, and I'm always amazed how much my colleagues can cling to this idea that there's always more competitors in the marketplace, even if there visibly aren't any. Actually, my next book is probably going to be about the tech industry, so I'm kind of focused on these characters these days. Those industries don't, haven't even gone through a concentration process. I mean, the Economist magazine referred to uh, like social media and internet search, which are big industries. They describe them as, in their words, out-of-the-box monopolies, <laughs> mainly because those industries, you know, they're based on networks. They have network effects, which really drive or really encourage monopolization from Bill Gates, Windows monopoly, all the way up to you know, Facebook today. But even if we look at industries outside of these network-based ones, which are notorious for monopoly, if we look at the rest of the economy, it's a huge merger wave across the board. Healthcare, manufacturing, pharmaceuticals, media, above all. And if you look at what's driving this current uh, wave of mergers, you know, there's various market conditions, of course, that play into it. But one factor that you see listed again and again, especially in these huge media mergers like AT&T and Warner right now, uh, is that they're trying to gain scale so they can be on a level playing field with these Silicon Valley tech monopolists. Like that industry's monopolies are so big and powerful, generating so much ad revenue and hoarding so much data about us, as we now know, that it's creating a rationale, basically, for the rest of the economy to go through this ridiculous tsunami of merger activity. What the whole argument is admitting is the economy doesn't really stay competitive. We're getting bigger because we have big rivals that we want to deal with. Like that's the reality of capitalism. I remember Hayek uh, in Road to Serfdom, he refers to uh, market concentration uh, as a like as a Marxist doctrine, 
that is amazing. Even in his era that he could say such a ludicrous, like that is just pushing your head into the sand. People have so much respect for these characters and they get economics, Nobel prizes, and they get to advise, advise Reagan and Thatcher. But if you look at these figures, I mean, they're intellectual opportunists. They're there to be a fig leaf for power, in this case, market power instead of some other institution. But uh, I think the claim, which again, you're right, is completely still extant in economics teaching that markets are default competitive. That really goes to show how much the field is off in its own universe, I think. We don't want to over-romanticize competition, though. It certainly is, it can be brutal mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the war of each against all. So uh, to uh, spend the last couple of minutes, we always reserve the last couple of minutes for these big questions. But what, as Lenin once said, what is to be done? Yeah, you're right. That is the big question. The near-term stuff is seeming to be happening now. And, of course, you know, we're all watching with enthusiasm. We've, you know, we've been watching this horrible right-wing uprising against neoliberalism with Brexit and the Trump election. What we're seeing in the last relatively recent period is the left really starting to fight back and to put out very impressive political candidates who can win just in the very nearest term within relatively sort of reformist social democratic politics. A lot of human suffering can be relieved with that, even within our broader marketplace framework. And so that's why a lot of figures like, you know, like yourself and me and others have been willing to support you know, figures around Sanders in that kind of political program that's sort of DSA-centered uh, program, which is shooting up in its membership. So I think we're seeing the beginnings of some positive, you know, the, the first steps for positive political change there. But the bigger thing for me is what's happening more broadly. Like there are a number of impressive popular works that are coming out right now. Like I just saw uh, Boots Riley's movie uh, two days ago. Fantastic. I can't shut my face recommending it to people. You've got a lot of that sort of activity happening now. So I think we're seeing people being forced to recognize that the left is itself a real American constituency and its candidate can almost win a crooked presidential nomination nomination process. And we can put out these uh, works that really do resonate with people. Like in the longer term, you know, we're going to have to bring the labor movement back somehow from its horrible defeat uh, in that Janus verdict uh, two months ago. And that's a long road to come back on there just to get everyone reorganized. So there's an organized constituency for keeping the White House out of Republican hands and for keeping some bargaining power in the working class. Past that, I mean, I, you know, myself in chapter five of my book, I want to lay out the case for why freedom would be better advanced through a meaningful socialist program, meaning not just Bernie Sanders' social democratic platform, as great as I think that would be, but an actual structural change in the economy. And there we need to look at workforce control over the economy. You can imagine a much more organized workforce doing a sit-down general strike and seizing control of capital. It would, of course, have to come with some sort of real political movement as well, like a meaningful election putting in political uh, figures who are willing to help legitimize and legalize that seizure of the capital that's the ownership of that capital, it creates the power that drives what happens. The direct action from the workers is a big part of this, but I have to keep that eye on the political side of it. You need a real political victory that shows to the world and to the right in this country, certainly too, that they don't just go from victory to victory and win everything. We need a real legitimizing political victory too. So with this political organizing that's happening, and again, this new generation Apart from the libertarians, yes, there's a lot of willingness to question the system there. And I think as we see that uh, these young people mature, I'm hoping we'll see a lot more uh, political action from that generation. 
That was Rob Larson, a professor of economics at Tacoma Community College and author of Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom from Zero Books. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Long live free enterprise! some of I'm on the side of mankind as much as the next man from McCarthy's 1990 album Banking, Violence, and the Inner Life Today. Next, Russia, a country that's been spending some time in the headlines and has also been learning about the relationship between capitalism and freedom. What's it like there, really? Keith Gessen, one of the founders of N Plus One magazine, explores these issues in his second novel, A Terrible Country, published by the Penguin. It's the story of Andre Kaplan, who takes leave from his disorderly life in Brooklyn to take care of his lonely, failing grandmother in Moscow, the city where he was born but left as a young child. Much the same could be said of Gessen himself. It's that, but as no less an authority than Harvard Magazine put it, it's really about life under neoliberalism. Which is funny coming from Harvard, an institution that had a lot to do with bringing the glories of neoliberalism to Russia. The title, by the way, comes from something the grandmother says about the country. Keith Gessen. Russia, in, in, in American eyes, is a terrible country, as your title says. Putin's Russia is a hellhole of uh, oppression, quasi-totalitarian state, which is a successor to the Soviet Union, which was hell on earth. Your picture of both those phases of Russian history, you know, more complicated than that. Contemporary Russia, obviously there's repression, but it's not hell on earth. How terrible a country is it? You know, the thing that Putin is always saying is, at least it's not 1937, right? That's kind of his argument for things not being so bad, right? And um, that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> um, so I was six when I left in 1981, right? I don't actually have a kind of living, functional memory of the USSR. And, you know, reading memoirs or even just talking to people who were there, it's very hard to reconstruct just how comparatively bad it was compared to the post-oil shock United States, right? My memory of coming to the U.S. in 1981 was not of arriving in an incredibly prosperous country, right? Certainly more prosperous than the USSR was, but people weren't driving gleaming automobiles. There was a recession on, things were a little tight in 1981. How terrible is it now compared to what? In the American view of Russia now, uh, it's been a very, especially, you know, liberals, because Putin stole the election from Hillary, the KGB is on the march, you know, people live in fear, it's a miserable, oppressed environment. But, you know, people go by their daily lives uh, and don't seem, you know, in, in your portrayal, like they're suffering. 
day-to-day life in Russia is not, you know, the hell on earth that it is in the American imagination. No. Certainly for some people it is, right? If you get caught up in this, for whatever reason, through your political work, or you have a business rival who is more powerful than you, it can certainly become hell on earth very quickly, just as in the United States, you know, people who get caught up in the criminal justice system quickly enter hell on earth, right? The kind of shock that Andre experiences... He's in Brooklyn, he reads the news, he's actually pretty well informed about Russia, but he's still very shocked when he shows up in Moscow and sees a quite prosperous uh, city full of cafes and German automobiles, right? You would have the same experience today if you went to Moscow, right? And this is a lot of people who went to the World Cup were, you know, shocked. (laughs) I mean, this, you know, especially in the cities, there's a lot of money, right? There's still a lot of oil money. Most of it goes into the cities. Uh, So you have this kind of, uh, I think it would be wrong to call it a middle class, you have this pretty large oil elite. And, you know, it's trickled down to a certain portion of the population. I mean, Russia's probably as prosperous now as it's been, ever. It's behind Europe, but it's not as far behind as it's been. Well, no, if you leave Moscow, is that the case? Well, if you go to Kazan or something, right? Tatarstan, right? That's going to be a very nice place because there's a lot of oil money there, right? So there's pockets of oil money in various cities. If you go into the countryside, it's collapsed, right? It's, it's really bad. And a lot of people have left the village. I mean, there's no young people in the villages. Some of the old kind of industrial towns are still functioning. Others have collapsed. I think one of the characters says we're, we're living off this old Soviet infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I haven't built anything new since, really. Is that pretty accurate? I think that's right. I mean, certainly, certainly with oil, that's right. I mean, there's a pretty great book called uh, Wheel of Fortune by Thane Gustafson that describes this. He argues that the Soviets, you know, uh, pretty constrained sort of technologically. There wasn't a lot of technology transfer from the West in terms of oil exploration. They had to figure things out on their own. They did figure it out. And most of the oil that's being pumped right now in Russia was discovered in Soviet times. And, you know, uh, that's a limited resource. The kind of American image of a place that is, you know, totally uh, unfree, Putin's watchful eye is everywhere, right? That is not um, what you experience if you actually go and spend time in Russia. And the other important thing is you go go there and you're like, oh, this is not a Soviet (laughs) egalitarian socialist society. This is a capitalist society. This is a society with tremendous inequality. Even more unequal than the United States. Even more unequal than the United States. But, you know, uh, it's right there. It's neck and neck. Yeah. And those are the top two. Yeah. Right, I think, I mean, or, you know, yes, these are these are two very unequal societies. It's much more like the United States than um, it is like the Soviet Union. Yeah. The uh, um, but some of the cafes seem extraordinarily expensive. Like, you know, they, yes. You, so that, $12 for a cup of coffee. You know, well, right. And that's what happens when you have inequality, right? I mean, you have this class of people who can afford to go and have a cup of coffee, right? So they don't care if it's $10. And everybody else, the grandmother, you know, she can't even kind of fathom the idea of going into a cafe. It's just not even on her kind of mental map of Moscow. So in that situation... Yeah, the Soviet Union didn't really develop that sort of service infrastructure. They did not, right. There was a book that I... Uh, Philip Hansen, is that some? Is that a name you know? Yeah. Uh, he wrote the... He wrote a, a pretty good book called The uh, Rise and Fall of the Soviet Economy, you know, just describing the the command economy, right? And uh, what he actually describes is a pretty, you you know much more about this than I do, but he he describes a a 
pretty elaborate bureaucracy that does receive certain signals. Um, it's not just you know Brezhnev sitting there and right. determining how many pants people need, right? right? You have a kind of all these layers, and you know the kind of lowest layer has some contact with the actual commercial situation. But ultimately, you do have a kind of plan for the number of pants, or how much we want to invest in the pants sector too. Uh huh. Um, yeah. So and they so, didn't want to invest into the cafe sector. That was not a hard no, priority. no. And well, there's a very, there's a very, very funny line in uh, Kapuczynski, who's you know Polish journalist. He's in Africa, and he goes to a bar. You know, people are sitting there and drinking and just having fun, and he thinks to himself, "This is not a bar." You know, a bar is a line where you stand in line, you know, and then you get to the front of the line, you get a beer. <laughs> and then you step aside, you drink the beer, right? And if you want another beer, you get to the back of the line again, right? Yeah, there wasn't this culture of kind of sitting around. And the kind of striking thing is having gone to Russia starting in the mid-90s, right? I mean, in the mid-90s, you really couldn't find a place to sit down and have a cup of coffee or anything, right? There was nothing. But there was a lot of political freedom in the 90s, right? And uh, the kind of graph of political freedom versus the number of cafes has, has been, go, you know, in a, I guess a chiasmatic uh, motion, right? So the number of cafes has increased as the level of political freedom has decreased. And now in 2018, you go, there's tons of cafes. The currency has actually collapsed. So unlike in the book, the cafes are relatively affordable, right? You can now get a $2 coffee in Moscow. But the level of political freedom, I mean, if you turn on the TV, it's pretty ugly. That's sort of where the rubber hits the road in a way. TV is just, if it's any kind of news or kind of talk show format, and they have these kind of crazy talk shows where the nationalists kind of yell at the liberals. They'll have like a token liberal. There's actually a guy named Owen Matthews who used to, he was an ex- expat, longtime expat journalist, um, used to work for Newsweek, who now goes on these shows and gets yelled at by the nationalists. Yeah, so if you, know, if you turn on the TV, it's, it's really ugly. But you can certainly live your life and ignore all that, right? The picture of the liberals in, in, in your book is funny. It, it's, they sometimes sound like uh, American liberals trying to deal with Trump. They find Putin and his government to be vulgar and oppressive, but uh, they're just kind of reduced to mockery. They don't have much beyond mockery and snobbery, it seems. Yeah, and I mean, that, that was a particular moment. I mean, y- you have had, since then, a, you've had the emergence of Navalny, Alexei Navalny, who's a, who's a real figure, really impressive, has created some, under very difficult conditions, has created an organization, you know, that's nationwide. So I think the kind of situation for liberals, on the one hand, is much worse than it was 10 years ago, because they have fewer kind of media outlets, they are... After Crimea, they are really thought of as the enemy of the people. At the same time, you have a, a political outlet in Navalny that didn't exist really 10 years ago. Uh, but like many of our liberals, they don't really seem to care much about the working class. No, they don't. I mean, and that's the... And actually, Navalny, interestingly, has begun to try to think about how to talk about like inequality, for example. But their sort of fundamental position is... We don't actually have capitalism in this country. If we actually had capitalism, then we would be prosperous like Europe and we would have nice, uh, a nice kind of happy democratic. I remember at the time of the transition, they used to say if we were a normal country. Right. Do they still say that? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So that means like a Western European country to them. Right. 
I mean, that's certainly what they meant, and certainly what Gorbachev meant. They come to the States, and they, don't, they again, don't necessarily see the, the other side of things, right? Yeah. Uh, they don't do a lot of traveling in, you know, the Rust Belt, right? So they come to New York and San Francisco. Right. So the, the other kind of plank of the book, right, is Andre showing up there to take care of his grandmother and having these, like, pretty basic, a kind of basic liberal understanding of the Russian transition, which is it failed because they didn't carry out the capitalist, you know, neoliberal reforms, right? And then gradually learning that they did carry them out. And this is the result. Jeffrey Sachs told me that Russia's problem was it didn't follow his advice. Well, Sachs, he said a number of things. (laughs) I mean, he also also wanted a uh, very large subsidy from from the Bush administration, which they refused to give him, right? Because we had won the Cold War. There are people over there who say, look, we did carry out the reforms and we do have capitalism and this is what it looks like in Russia, right? This is what Russian capitalism looks like and what we, we don't need more capitalism, we need less. I'm speaking with Keith Gesson, author of A Terrible Country, published by Penguin. The productive sector is very weak, right? It's just like an oil economy mm-hmm. um, and like industry is not very well developed outside of the oil sector. Oil economies typically produce this small parasitic elite. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really do much. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that that's kind of the general. And, and, but the scale of Russia is so large to have this weird Petra state grafted on such a large society mm-hmm. that was also once had such standing in the world. And then to have that all taken away, it's just, it's, what, it's a very strange history. I mean, yeah. Well, the Soviet Union was such a monstrous force in the world, you know, a, a stage. And then to have... Mm-hmm. All that collapse and uh, this strange kind of gangster capitalism take its place. Is, uh... Uh, let me try something out on you. I mean, to me, it seems like sort of Putinism is parallel to Trumpism in the sense, you know, the 90s. I don't think we, I don't think we understand this in the States. I mean, the 90s were incredibly traumatic, right? It's a kind of deindustrialization at a scale and at a pace that is like the 1970s and early 80s in the U.S., right? But, you know, like times 100. Yeah. Right? And with... And in a more compressed time period. Yes, in a more compressed time period, yeah. yeah. Plus uh, incredibly high mortality and a kind of overturning of just people's idea of the world. It's like a transvaluation of, you know, a transformation of values, right? Yeah. You know, whereas you've been told that you know, we're building socialism. The next day you're told that was a lie. <laughs> we lied to you. You've been lied to. You're an idiot. You are all idiots. And now we're building some, you know, now we're, tra- you know, transforming into a capitalist society, right? You know, that and kind of overlaid by this gangster, you know, I mean, now it's gangster capitalism. You don't really see it on the streets in the same way, right? I mean, you, you see guys in, this is a kind of observation in the book is, he sees these guys in suits who replace the guys in leather jackets and, yeah. and track suits, right? It's the same type of guy, but he, he's dressed differently now, and, and that's a different vibe, right? But in the 90s, you, you literally had these guys who were just running protection rackets, right, everywhere you looked, um, and they were dressed to intimidate people. That was part of their business, was intimidation. You had this kind of very rapid transformation from a relatively orderly maybe stagnating society into the society where that's just run by thugs. People found that very traumatic. And Putin's been very good at playing on that, right? It wasn't quite as traumatic as Putin makes it out to be. The 90s are still the rallying cry of Putin, 
right? He says, you don't want to go back to the 90s, do you? And I mean, I... Well, and the U.S. had a lot of influence on how the 90s unfolded. It's easy to demonize the U.S. from a Russian perspective, isn't it? Sure. You know, it's not like the Russians had no agency. Yeah, certainly they were uh, told by American advisors, Jeffrey Sachs among them, that um, if they would just do these, you know, few simple things, <laughs> you know, and they had, then everything would be great. And they had uh, people coming over like Bill Browder. If you read Browder's memoir, you know, this person who has become this moral figure of the resistance to Putin, right? I mean, he was brought over there. Grandson of the former head of the U.S. Communist correct, Party, yes. too, which is uh, nice touch. But, you know, he became a communist. I mean, he became a capitalist to kind of spite his family as yeah. a kind of rebellion against his family. He came over there as a kind of, as an investment banker who was supposed to advise first a Polish company and then Russian companies on how to handle the transition and like a lot of these guys quickly saw an opportunity to enrich himself right and instead of helping the russians <laughs> uh, he helped himself yeah so the americans came in made a, a a lot of money and then left so yeah so so there's a lot of anger at the u.s uh, a lot of disappointment the reason i think this is has a parallel to trumpism is that trump has been talking about sort of american decline he's not wrong right and he is speaking to something that actually happened. He doesn't have the correct solution to it, <laughs> um, as Putin does not either, right? But the liberals, certainly in you know the early kind of Putin era, well into the first decade, into the second decade of the 21st century, we're talking about how the 90s were great. Everything was great in the 90s. We had so much freedom. Things were going in the right direction. Most Russians really did not experience it that way. Yeah, they were broken, sick, and dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, in the same way that, you know, when the Democrats in 2016, um, America's already great. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right? a great slogan. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's this, it's this kind of unwillingness to acknowledge that people were, that other, you know, you might have been doing fine, but other people were suffering. In fact, a lot of people were suffering, right? That's not a winning strategy. And, uh, the memory of the Soviet Union, that's a, the topic that comes up in the book. The grandmother um, lived through it. The uh, Andre and uh, she watch old Soviet movies together to, to pass the time, and the movies themselves were not charmless, right? Oh yeah, they're some of them are great. Yeah, how does the the Soviet memory sit today? I mean, it's, you know, twenty five years ago that the USSR collapsed, but more than twenty five years mm -hmm. ago. But what is the you know the, the political emotional valence of the, the memory of the Soviet times? it's complicated but what's interesting about the grandmother for example is that she's not you know unlike if you if you were to take a typical person who of that generation right the world war ii generation most of those people were pro-soviet right they were quite patriotic um they were not jewish <laughs> right they liked the soviet union you know it, it uh, defeated the nazis and it gave them an apartment and a job so She's atypical in the sense that she was quite anti-Soviet. And yet it emerges, you know, um, and, and I think this is not uncommon, that she was very attached to a lot of things about Soviet culture, right, I and mean, about Soviet life. And, um, you know, whether it was the movies or free health care, right? Uh, and, and stability. You know, you, and, yeah. And, and, and a your kind world of, was not going to fall apart. And, and a, just a kind of rough kind of equality among people. I think people in retrospect find that very appealing. And uh, rather than kind of dog eat dog <laughs> capitalism. So it's not only not 1937 in Russia, 
I mean, it's not even 1975. You can trap. You can leave Russia if you want. 1975, you you were not allowed to leave. It was a whole big endeavor to get out of the country, right? Whereas now, if you feel like leaving Russia, you can just do if that. If you've got the money. If you've got the money, yes. But it's it's heading in that direction, right? You have this trickling down kind of oil money that does exist, but you don't have you have no social protections. Education has been privatized. Healthcare is moving toward privatization. So you kind of have the worst of both worlds. <laughs> Those movies, what were they like? They weren't socialist realism. What was the aesthetic of the movies? So these are like movies from the 70s. They're just, you know, and, and uh, you know, the kind of most famous one is actually Irony of Fate. And it's about a guy who gets very drunk on New Year's Eve and he accidentally gets on a plane from Moscow to Leningrad. And, you know, one of the things that you realize is that, you know, it costs, I don't know, 20 rubles, right, to just get on a plane from Moscow to Leningrad, right? It was something you could do by accident. (laughs) And then he goes, uh, you know, he gets in a cab and uh, says his uh, address, and it's, you know, 15 Red Army uh, Avenue, right, Uh, Building 4, and it looks just like his building in Moscow, <laughs> right? And sort of, you know, the, the one miraculous thing is that his key works in the door also, right? But so this is a kind of commentary. And then he uh, ends up, you know, barging in on this um, woman who lives there. And um, she's very mad, but then they eventually fall in love. <laughs> um, but, the, you know, this is a, uh, you know, a kind of critique of this kind of mass housing that was being produced uh, and that everybody lived in. Uh, on the sort of exurbs of the of the big cities, so it was you know it was very much a these movies kind of made these I wouldn't say loving criticisms, but certainly kind of you know mild criticisms of Soviet reality. Yeah, they were you know they were they were um, mostly kind of romantic comedies. You know they were a little bit uh, longer. I think you know I think Soviet people uh, had a bit more time to sit around. So, you know, that movie's, you know, almost three hours long <laughs> and not a lot happens. Yeah, it's, you know, so, and, uh, you know, the movie that um, in, is discussed in the book is uh, Autumn Marathon about a um, college professor who's carrying on an affair in Leningrad and he lives on, uh, the, you know, the bridges come up at a certain hour. So if he's hasn't left his uh, mistress's house uh, before midnight. He has to really run to try to get across the, the bridge to back to the other side of Leningrad where he lives. You know, they're very kind of human, pretty warm films. And, and uh, it's not like they're full of lies. What you learn is that there was this fairly large domestic sphere, kind of domestic and even, you know, the kind of issues that people have at work, they aren't specific to communism, really. They're just kind of office politics that you have everywhere. Some people do more work, some people do less work. I'm speaking with Keith Gesson, author of A Terrible Country, published by Penguin. Your hero um, falls in with um, a group of uh, young communists, you might say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many such folks were there over the years? Yeah, so, I mean, I noticed this around 2006, 2007, where... Yeah, the um, novel is set in 2008, because the, the U.S. financial crisis is going yes. on in the background. Um, I remember around 2006, 2007, going to Moscow, and, you know, if you saw kind of ambitious, intelligent uh, young people in Moscow in the 90s, they would be likely to be reading, you know, something about America that was 
you know, I don't know, Ayn Rand or, or someone, right? Or, or Hayek, you know, they, that's the kind of, you know, America is great, capitalism is great, right? And then around 2006, I started noticing young people carrying around uh, Howard Zinn, which I just was shocked, right? Why would you, and uh, you know, I was like, what a strange thing for a Russian person to, you know, to, to be reading a kind of radical history of the United States. But what I came to realize is that they were, it was important for them to read specifically about the United States to start. I mean, partly because there weren't books about Russian capitalism, right? For them to read, uh, you know, outside of Lenin or whatever, right? Nothing about the new Russian capitalism. But also it was important for them to understand actually the things, that the story that they had been told about the United States as this land of, magic and happiness for everyone was not true. You know, that was a kind of first step to understanding that the path that Russia had been put on was maybe not the best path, right? So, yeah, you started having this generation, and it's not, you know, an entire generation, but a lot of kind of young, uh, thoughtful, kind of grad student-type people in Russia who started turning left in about the mid-aughts, right? And then like 10 years later, is that still exist or yeah i mean it's growing i think it's growing very slowly but yeah i mean you have yeah you have this independent democratic socialist social democratic you know trotskyist i mean the, the, the guys that i know well as andre tells the cops they're just mainstream european social democrats right, right yes uh i mean they are yeah i think they're a little they might be a little further I think to the left they would like that. to think of themselves to the left of that but yes yes yeah. uh but yeah they're trotskyists so they don't have much truck with the actual communist party which, insofar as it exists, is kind of a Stalinist party. But, you know, once in a while they can do things with the communists. Um, for a period of time, it was just these kind of Moscow intellectuals. But since then, they've managed to kind of make connections sort of you know, with, with independent labor unions, um, with young people who aren't necessarily, uh, who come out of like Antifa, right? And Antifa in, in Russian was a, street fighting organization that fought neo-Nazis in the early to mid-aughts, right? And so some of those people are now moving into kind of more more kind of organized socialist uh, movements. So there's a, and they've, they've uh, combined under this thing called the Russian Socialist Movement, which is not very large, but it's, you know, it exists. And, you know, I think it's under surveillance by the part of the FSB that as an extremist organization. Yeah, as an extremist organization. My friend uh, Kirill Medvedev ran for city council in Moscow. Um, didn't didn't win, but uh, he, he tried. I think this is last year. So they're sort of um, not unlike the DSA, right? Kind of trying to field candidates, trying to figure out what they can do uh, within the existing system, but also organizing... Uh, ind- you know, independent labor unions are are very important. Um, and so, you know, there are still laborers <laughs> in in Russia to be organized. Um, so, yeah, it, that's a real thing. Now, the character in the book wants never to go back. You personally don't feel that way, right? What was being expressed by that sense of permanent departure? It's a feeling that I've, you know, I've left Russia numerous times <laughs> um, after feeling like I wouldn't after thinking, oh, I'm going to just stay here. In the book, he becomes really attached to his life in Russia and the people that he meets, and then he lets them down really badly. So I think in the book, it's a kind of expression of a feeling of failure and sort of disappointment in himself. In real life, (laughs) you can make bad decisions and then 
adjust them or change your trajectory. And but you feel a pull of Russia? Yeah, I mean, I have to say I, I've been writing about Russia in some form or another for pretty much since college, you know, it's more than 20 years. And I always feel like I'm done. And I think, okay, that's, I can now move on to America. And I have to say, I feel that way again. Finishing this book, I feel like I have said most of what I had to say about Russia. I don't know what I'm going to be doing in, in the next few years. And at the same time, I, you know, I do continue to find it fascinating. Right now, it's pretty stagnant. Right. I mean, you have Putin. Um, it's not clear when he's going to go away. He is pretty firmly in control. He's pretty popular. And the only visible challenge to him is Navalny. But things have looked that way before in Russia, too, and they change very quickly. Certainly right now, it's not the, I wouldn't call it the most interesting, dynamic, <laughs> exciting place in the world. Right. It's like the lights are being turned off very slowly. But it's it now, you know, now it's become this huge subject in the U.S., right? Yeah. And it's unavoidable. <laughs> well, I hear the Russians are amused by the, the way that they're depicted as these uh, sinister and all-knowing manipulators in a country where nothing really works. Exactly, yes. You know, the kind of generous reading of the Putin regime, and I think, I think more true than not, is that they have... You know, yeah, they've stolen and enriched themselves, but they've also tried to do the best that they could. Given a choice between uh, doing something good for Russia and something bad, <laughs> I think they would choose good, right? I mean, this Putin is a, a Russian patriot in his own understanding of that. And yet they're dealing with the oligarchs was incredibly crude. They have been totally unable to create any economic kind of activity outside of the oil and gas sector. They wanted to, right? I mean, this was a huge part of the Medvedev era. He tried to kind of create a Russian Silicon Valley. Well, they do have a lot of tech talent there, though, right? Less and less. An inheritance of the Soviet Union. Right. <laughs> they have, yes, from the Soviet Union, they inherited a tremendous math and science program, which they've you know, been pissing away, basically, over, you know, they haven't really been investing back into. Putin is not in control of his own country. Putin is not sovereign in Russia. The idea that he is a puppet master who controls, you know, <laughs> the rest of the world, right, is, is laughable. What Russia gate, you know, what the Russian interference has proved is that the U.S. is a mess. Another terrible country. Exactly, yes. This is our, this is... This is our terrible country. I was Keith Gesson, author of the charming and intelligent new novel, A Terrible Country, from Penguin. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this son of the string quartet number 11 by Dmitry Shostakovich, performed by the Sorrel Quartet. Till next week, bye. <laughs>